Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Modern-day New England is a region comprising six states in the northeastern United States. Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont. English plans to colonize this part of America began to take concrete form in the early to mid-1590s. The first expedition to set out from England was led by Bartholomew Gosnold. He obtained backing to attempt to found an English colony in the New World, and in 1602, he set sail in a small bark named the Concord, with 32 on board. Captain Gosnold pioneered a direct sailing route due west from the Azores to what later became New England, arriving at Cape Elizabeth off the southern coast of Maine. He and his men eventually made their way further south along the coastline with the intention of establishing a colony and small fishing outpost in the southern part of New England. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. In the second half of the 16th century in Elizabethan England, Prominent merchant groups began to emerge, seeking to capitalize and perhaps monopolize trade in other parts of the world. The backbone of these merchant outfits would be sturdy sailors, great shipbuilders, hardworking fishermen, and brave and intelligent navigators. But the money class had an interesting top layer to it. In this time, you have the high nobility, who seemingly never need to lift a finger for the entirety of their lives based on who they were born to. But at the mid to bottom of the noble class, you have these sirs who have to get by in the world based on their charm, their good looks, their personality, their skill with a sword or a sail. Sir Humphrey Gilbert would be one of these men, a man worthy of admiration. In June of 1578, Sir Humphrey Gilbert receives a grant to plant a colony in North America. And wherever he put boots on the ground, he would receive the rights to exclusivity 600 miles in every direction from that settlement. Over the next couple of years, he himself and others he hires explore the coastlines of Newfoundland, square on over to Maine. In 1582, he kicked around the idea of starting a huge colony in what he called Norumbega, a vague descriptor of anywhere from modern-day Maine to even the inside of upstate New York. Instead, in 1583, he officially takes possession of Newfoundland, which had already been populated by the Beothuk people and a huge number of seasonal fishermen many from England, but many from other places. He gathered a number of them together, had them swear an oath to himself, and as far as he was concerned, he now had a colony. Newfoundland, of course, persists to this day, but Gilbert, not so much. He dies at sea, and Queen Elizabeth then gives all his rights and privileges in the New World over to his half-brother, the more famous, at least today anyway, Sir Walter Riley. Riley, with his new package of privileges, then became the primary sponsor advertiser and the source of legitimacy for a planned colony that would become known as Roanoke, and to us, the lost colony of Roanoke. So the 1580s came and went, and so did Roanoke. But Riley's claim, because of these attempts, nonetheless remained legitimate. And so in the intervening years, small English fishing and fur trading operations, operating off the coast of the mainland and not Newfoundland, remained a clandestine affair, few in number. At any moment, Riley or someone who he sells the rights to could find a way to tax them along the coast or tax their operations back in England or sue them out of existence. 
And so as much as the Gilberts and the Rileys helped to spurn discovery of the New World by the English, they held back development in some ways, holding claims to large areas they had no ability to capitalize on. And so we skip ahead to the year 1602 to a curious expedition led by Bartholomew Gosnold. Speculation kicks in high here. It's thought that he may have sailed to the New World under Sir Walter Riley, which makes sense because in the English view, he was going to now sail right into Riley's domain. The very concrete connection that Gosnold has to Riley and his family is that on board, he had Bartholomew Gilbert, Sir Humphrey Gilbert's son, Riley's half-brother, and maybe even Riley Gilbert, his other son. The primary source for this expedition is written by John Brereton, who was actually with Gosnold. The name of his work is The Brief and True Relation of the Discovery of the North Part of Virginia in 1602. Yes, at this time, there is no New England. Even in the English eyes, it's called Norumbega or Northern Virginia. The term New England is actually going to come from a surprise source many years after 1602. Gosnold left England in March, and he hit the coast of Maine by May. Here he probably interacted with the Mi'kmaq people, and Brereton's description of the natives of this area is very similar to Champlain's own from around this time. That shockingly, the natives already knew a lot of European words. Some of them were wearing European clothing. Some of them were using European boats. It's very clear that independent traders had long been along the coast of Maine, made themselves a little profit trading with the natives, and then went back home and told nobody about where they made their money. Of course you wouldn't. That's your income. But here we see the stereotype of the clueless native falling through, where they're all full of heart and they're one with nature, but they're clueless when it comes to the evil nature of other men, and therefore holy but gullible. Nope, the natives of Maine knew exactly what the Europeans were doing. What they had, what they wanted to trade for, they were as intelligent and industrious as any other people on the planet. The account mentions how friendly the natives of Maine were, and Gosnold and his people were actually invited to stay and settle among them, start his colony there. But he wanted to settle a little further south. The English at this time realized that the weather wasn't exactly the same in Europe at the same latitude. And so he trolled the coast of New England heading south, trading knives, bells, mirrors, and beads for pelts. Now, mirrors might throw you off, but imagine going your whole life without ever seeing yourself in a mirror, a clean reflection of yourself. Then all of a sudden, somebody hands you this little light piece of glass, and then there you are. Ooh, who's that guy? Think of how many times you look in a mirror day to day. You've gone your whole life, never looked in a mirror. Suddenly, there's one in front of you. You have it in your hand. You can see yourself. You can fix your hair if you want. How much would you give to keep that little square or that little circle? It doesn't matter the shape. The mirror at this time is a wonderfully light, portable, and easily tradable item. Another man who was with Gosnold, Gabriel Archer, wrote an account who had similar very pleasant things to say about the natives in northern New England. Okay, but why is Gosnold important? Well, here we go. He's coming down the coast. He finds this large area that's just full of cod. They catch tons of it. Right off this great cape of land, he names it Cape Cod, the name that still applies to it to this day. After that, his two ships land on an island that's seemingly full of wild grapes, like a vineyard, and he names it Martha's Vineyard, after his infant daughter who had passed away, now an eternal namesake. Down here, though, he found the natives, who were probably the Wampanoag, to be a bit different. They were less experienced with the Europeans, maybe not experienced at all. They didn't have the same European words to throw around, they didn't have the same dress, the same items already. They certainly had crossed some sort of threshold whereby they were outside the range of normal European contact. 
Here on the island, he found that they had skins to trade, bits of raw copper. They had tobacco, the supply of which was not steady in England at this time. But the natives were also very desperate for the new and interesting things the Europeans had, and they took to stealing from Gosnold. And so clearly this would not be the place to plant a colony of just a few dozen men. So after a short while, he left. Continuing to sail on, he found a small little island that the natives probably called Cuddyhunk, and today we call Cuddyhunk. But he named it Elizabeth Island, or Elizabeth's Isle, after his sister. And this becomes the basis for the Elizabeth Island chain that Cuddyhunk Island is now part of. The island, quite small, seemingly had no native population. Not on a permanent basis, anyway. I'm sure the resources of the island were used seasonally. They landed on this beautiful island. Going inland just a little bit, they found a huge pond. And at the center of this huge pond was an even smaller island. This was a hole-in-the-bottom-of-the-sea situation. There was an island with a body of water in it that contained an island within that. And here Gosnell decided he could build a safe storehouse in the center of his colony. The island both having great harbors on the outside, a layer of defense, and then fresh water source on the inside. And so he and his men immediately planted European seeds, European crops. And to their amazement, everything grew like weeds. Gabriel Archer said that all the men were ravished at the beauty and delicacy of this sweet soil. Our other source, Brereton, confirms what Archer said, claiming that the best farmland in England would be considered barren compared to the soil on Elizabeth Island. Very promising stuff. But why is Gosnold making a colony? What is going on here? What is the purpose of this colony? Well, early on, when the French considered what we would call New England to be their Acadia, many of the French fishermen who would take the same routes and fish in the same places as the English fishermen we're learning about now, realized that having something more than your typical fishing colony, where fishermen show up during the correct seasons, they do their drying, they pack their boats and they go home, would be beneficial in helping to reduce costs provide fresh food based on people who would be living in the colony year-round, growing crops, help with native relations, and solidify claims to certain areas. So Gosnold wanted to start one of these, a colony that would swell for the fishing season. But like in Newfoundland around this time, in the winter, it wouldn't go down to nobody. There would still be a core left there, which would provide many advantages. For one thing, when these fishing operations would show up along the coasts of what we now call New England all the way up to Newfoundland, Sometimes there are fishing racks, and the places where they would stage their drying operations the year previous would be already occupied by a different group, and that would lead to conflict, sometimes violent conflict. Well, if you have a year-round population, that's not going to be an issue. You have already staked out your little territory. Also, considering the farmland is so good and you brought European crops, you'd have a supply of fresh food. You could open up better relations with the Native Americans, which would definitely help you in also dabbling in the fur trade. And then these people who would live year-round in the colony, maybe for their whole lives, but probably just for a couple years to make money, because it was basically all men at this time. It wasn't meant to be a self-propagating colony. You wouldn't have to transport them back and forth, and they would be able to feed themselves and enrich themselves in the New World. So the English and the French have the same idea around this time. They're going to start having something a little more than a summer colony. But this setup is very different than what we would see in Roanoke decades before, or in Plymouth decades afterward. The business in this case came first. The men came first. Just sturdy, young, or middle-aged men who could do the work and be left there over winter. In my mind, it seems like the more stable, reasonable plan. Start with how you're going to survive, how you're going to make your money, how you're going to make this venture profitable, and then you can start bringing over families and making something we would recognize as a more traditional community or village. 
Roanoke actually was kind of a two-stage colony. And the first stage was this just group of men to start setting up shop and looking for ways to make money. This seems like the more sensible way to start a colony. Start small, invest a little bit, find the profit and grow it from there. And yet, these kinds of colonies just pale in comparison in terms of historical importance or just the records that are left or the current population of what became of these settlements to these early ventures that just dumped dozens of families along the coast and said, figure it out. Such would be the case with Plymouth. And to a lesser extent, because they were a little more prepared, the Massachusetts Bay Company. It's just a rule of nature where experience and wisdom and knowledge does not prevail. You just dump a bunch of people somewhere and nature takes its course. You got men, you got women, sparks fly. We know what happens. So the backbone of Gosnold's colony on a little island inside of a pond, inside of a little island off the Atlantic coast, would be fishing operations, drying out fish, bringing it back to Europe, a cheap source of protein. That would be supplemented by fur trading if they could. And believe it or not, the stuff that Gosnold really packed his ship with was sassafras. Join me next time as we continue our tale of the exploration and early settlement of New England. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.